Today I will be reading from 2 Kings chapter 8 verses 1 through 6 from the Common English Bible. Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had brought back to life. You and your household must go away and live wherever you can, because the Lord has called for a famine. It is coming to the land and will last seven years. So the women, woman went and did at the, what the man of God asked. She and her household moved away, living in Felicia, seven years. When seven years had passed, the woman retar- returned from Felicia, and she went to appeal to the king for her house and her farmland. The king was speaking to Gehazi, the man of God's servant, asking him, Tell me about all the great things Elisha has done. So Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had brought the dead to life. At that very moment, the woman whose son he had brought back to life began to appeal to the king for her house and her farmland. Gehazi said, Your Majesty, this is the woman herself, and this is her son, the one Elisha brought to life. The king questioned the woman, and she told him her story. Then the king appointed an official to help her, saying, Return everything that belongs to her, as well as everything that the farmland has produced, starting from the day she left the country until right now. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you, Annette. So this morning we're going to start out with a a short test, a test of your knowledge about some things. Uh, Did any of you know that they have discovered that King Tut is actually a girl? Any of you? Did you know that? Do you know how they know that King Tut was a girl? Steve Doyle, you're way ahead of me. Slow down. It's because King Tut was a mummy. I know, that's a bad joke. But, but that's not beyond me. I know that's a really bad joke. But... Today we're going to just celebrate Mother's Day. Now that's a challenging thing because what we have to also recognize is that not all women who are here are mothers, right? And so today we want to not only honor moms who are here and who aren't here, we want to nurture, we want to honor them for their sacrifice, their nurturing, their inspirational love, but we also want to honor women here today who are beyond those kinds of norms and things, who haven't maybe been mothers, but who have participated in ways in which they also have nurtured and given sacrificially to others, in ways in which they have inspired others as well. Today we want to just simply give thanks for the women that are here, the power that they possess to change the world, to bring about justice and what is right. And that's our thread for worship today, for us simply to think about women who are faithful, women who are powerful and influential in our world, especially in a world that continues to kind of suppress that and in some ways even try to figure out how to deny value and worth. 
I think we're all aware that in our beloved United Methodist Church, there is a loud noise, a loud conversation that is going on over human sexuality. We're all aware of that, right? We're aware of some of the effects of our last general conference at 2016, how we have pushed this issue off to the Council of Bishops and a special commission. With all of that loud noise, we have missed some of the other things that have transpired when it comes to our general conference as well. Believe it or not, we are a a legislative kind of church. We operate on what's called three equal branches, like our own kind of government does. We have general conference that is made up of clergy and laity that are voted in from every annual conference and central conference. They represent all of us who sit in our churches every single Sunday. There's also the Council of Bishops, and then there's what we call our Judicial Council. They, among the three of them, manage the overall structures and systems, our doctrine and our policies of who we are as a united Methodist church in our unity. So every year, a certain number of amendments to our Constitution come up before the General Conference, or every four years when they meet. And then they vote on those, and then they forward them to the local annual conferences and central conferences to vote on for ratification. It's part of our process. We had five such amendments that went before general conference. They were affirmed, and then they were passed on for folks to vote on. Three out of the five received what's called the required two-thirds of of annual conferences and uh, central conferences to affirm them. And thus they will become part of our Constitution. Two of them failed. I want to read to you real quickly what those two amendments were. So here's the first one. The first one simply stated that we wanted to add a new paragraph between paragraphs 5 and 6 of our Constitution. And here's what the paragraph would say. As the Holy Scriptures reveals, both men and women are made in the image of God. And therefore men and women are of equal value. In the eyes of God. The United Methodist Church recognizes it is contrary to Scripture and to logic to say that God is male or female, as maleness and femaleness are characteristics of human bodies and cultures, not characteristics of the divine. The United Methodist Church acknowledges the long history of discrimination against women and girls. The United Methodist Church shall confront and seek to eliminate discrimination against women and girls, whether in organizations or in individuals in every facet of its life, and in society at large. The United Methodist Church shall work collaboratively with others to address concerns that threaten the cause of women and girls' equality and well-being. That did not pass. It got 66.5% of the vote. It needed 66.7%. Here's the second one. I'll read that to you real quick. It says the United Methodist Church is part of the church universal, which is the body in Christ. The United Methodist Church acknowledges that all persons are of sacred worth. All persons shall be eligible to attend its worship services, participate in its programs, receive the sacraments. Upon baptism, be admitted as baptized members, and upon taking vows, declaring the Christian faith, become professing members in any local church in the connection. In the United Methodist Church, no conference or other organizational unit of the church shall be structured so as to exclude any member or any constituent body of the church 
because of things like race, color, national origin, ability, or economic condition. Nor shall any member be denied access to an equal place in the life, worship, or governance of the church because of race, color, gender, national origin, ability, age, marital status, or economic condition. That received 61% vote. I'm not really sure what it is, and, and I just can't fathom, I can't imagine what it is that people could create as an objection to those two amendments. And yet we did. We failed to pass some basic amendments that would have affirmed everyone as equal in the eyes of God and as equal in the eyes of one another. Here's what our own bishop had to say. He wrote a quick letter to everyone not, short, not long after these were announced. He said, I am saddened and disappointed that the two constitutional amendments related to the rights of girls, women, and other vulnerable groups did not receive the necessary two-thirds aggregate vote of all the annual conferences and central conferences in the United Methodist Church. Please know that as your bishop in Missouri, I am firmly committed to the equality of women and their full inclusion in our church. When Missouri voted in 2017, we passed both of those amendments by 90% and 80% respectively. At the Council of Bishops meeting, of course, in Chicago, the votes were submitted by each annual conference and central conference to verify then by the council, be verified by the council. It was there that they learned that two of the five amendments did not meet our minimum threshold on votes. The bishop goes on to say, While I believe we have made progress in Missouri, I know we have miles to go before we realize gender justice in the Universal United Methodist Church. Miles to go. What a phrase. Now, despite our failures as a denomination, I think today we, the family of St. John's United Methodist Church, can say with a unified voice that we celebrate the women that are in our world and the women that are in our lives. We recognize that they are created in the image of God, just like any man that is present. They are persons of sacred worth, just like any of us men who are present. We celebrate the women And we have given them many opportunities in our church and we can give them more opportunities to be powerful and influential in the life of our church. And in particular, I think we celebrate today powerful and faithful women who have been a part of our church and continue to be a part of our church. Women who stand up for what is just and right in this world and who will do so regardless of of the cost. Now, when I read biblical stories, I think about some of them as being so far back in the distant past that they are really hard for me to conceive what they mean today for some of us, right? Now this would flesh out as kind of a modern example. But I thought maybe today we would look at the the story of the widow of Shunem as kind of a modern fable. And maybe it would contemporize it in such a way that we could grasp it a little bit more and see what is at play here. So let's think of it this way. There there was a widow in a small western Kansas town. Her husband was a moderately successful farmer. He had done well enough that he had been able to position the farm to self-maintain. When he died, that's what transpired. 
The farm kept on going. It kept on managing. And the wife inherited and took up the business and became the land owner. A few years after her death, her son contracted a disease, brought him near the brink of death. But the town was lucky that they had a doctor who could quickly diagnose, dispense what was necessary in some treatment, and help the young boy recover from the near brink of death. Now, the doctor was also known for that. He was pretty good at diagnosing quickly medical concerns and helping people get past them pretty quickly, even if they found themselves in some dire kind of circumstances. He kind of built a reputation of this, and his fame and his lore just kind of continued to increase amongst the town folks. So it's kind of good that the young man had such a, a doctor that was there. Now, the, the weather forecaster for out in western Kansas kept telling everybody that a famine was coming, a drought was coming pretty quickly, right? He kept prognosticating on it and predicting that the rainfall was way behind schedule and it looked like they were in for a tough season. And actually, a drought did come. It came and it stayed out in western Kansas. started devastating farmland. People couldn't grow any crops because there wasn't any water available to sustain their crops. And farm after farm after farm began to just fold and people had to figure out what they were going to do. This happened to the widow as well. Her farm succumbed to the drought. She had to figure out what to do next. So she decided to pack up her son and all of her possessions and, and the rest of her family and they moved in with the family down in Florida. They just took off for a period of time. The land eventually began to recover. The drought went away. The land began to recover. And about seven years later, it was actually producing a crop. And the widow decided, you know what? I think I'm going to go home. I'm going to see if I can get my land back and start my farm back up. Well, the mayor was a, was a guy that had a little bit of power and position in the town. And while people were abandoning their farms, he thought it was a good idea maybe to accumulate some land. So he started accumulating all these little small parcels, these little farmlands. He built up a, a pretty good stockpile of possessions of land. He was in the local diner one day, because that's usually in small towns where most people do their business is the local diner. And he's visiting with the, the local doctor's little physician assistant. And the two of them are having a conversation about the doctor and his lore. And they started recounting some of the stories about the doctor. And one of them happened to be the story about the widow and her son who was near death. And how fortunate it was that that boy had such a good doctor. And before you know it, as the story's going on and they're talking more and more about the doctor's lore, the widow walks into the diner. And she approaches the mayor and she says, Mr. Mayor, I understand you have my farmland now and I would like it back. And the physician's assistant looks at the mayor and says, that's the woman. She's the one, right? That's her son that was raised from the near dead by the doctor." So the mayor asked her a few questions, find out where she's been, what's going on. And before you know it, he's prompted to simply say to her, you know what, I'm going to give you your farm back. Not only am I going to give you your farm back, anything that I've made off of your farm, I'm going to give you that as well. Right? And she gets her farmland back. Now the interesting thing about that story is, is when you go to try to figure out from the biblical interpretation how to interpret that story, there's absolutely nothing out there. There are no commentaries that talk about 
the woman, the widow of Shuman. All of them talk about Elisha, the prophet. Her fortune, all that she experiences and gains in this story is laid at the feet of the fame of the prophet Elisha. He's given all of the credit in this story, right? And yet, it discounts the woman. It would be like each one of us saying that if Bill Clinton had never been governor of Arkansas and president of the United States, then Hillary never would have been a senator of New York, secretary of state, or a two-time presidential candidate. We would have totally discounted her abilities and skills if her husband had never been famous, ascended to office. Is that fair? Does that take into account who she is? No. And that's what we need to do today is really focus in on the widow of Schumann because she's the one that teaches us so much about a woman who has faith and power and the ability to exercise that for what is just and for what is right. She's the character that we learn from today. A powerful woman. A landowner, yes, but a woman who had a faith and a belief in what was right and what was just and was willing to do what was necessary in order to see justice come about. But there's a couple of things that are also missing from the story, a couple of details that are left out of it as well. When you read the story, I seriously doubt that the king was her first stop. More than likely, she had to jump through several different bureaucratic hurdles before she ever got to the king, which meant that she heard no several times until she got to the king. The widow could be an example not only of a powerful faith, but a persistent faith as well. Maybe the greatest lesson that we could learn from the widow of Shunem is that people who have a powerful faith are people who are persistent in seeking after what they believe in. Right? So let me tell you a little story. One August evening in 1996, there was a publisher by the name of Nigel Newton. And Nigel Newton left his office that evening. He was a publisher in London's Soho district. He headed home and he was carrying a stack of papers with him. Among those papers was 50 pages from a manuscript of a book that he was asked to review. Now, he really did not have very high hopes for this book because eight other publishers had already passed on it, said it wasn't worth even giving a second thought to. Nigel uh, got home. It was late. He was tired. He really didn't feel like reading 50 pages to review, so... He gave the 50 pages to his 8-year-old daughter, Alice, and asked her to read them. About an hour later, Alice comes running down the stairs where her father was resting. She could not stop talking about the 50 pages that she had just read. She wanted to know where the rest of the book was, right? She said to her father, this is so much better than anything else I've ever read. And day in and day out for the next month, she pestered him. For the rest of the manuscript, she wanted to read the rest of the book. Finally, he tracks down the author, signs her to a modest contract, gets the rest of the manuscript for his little girl Alice to read, and then he takes a chance and he prints 500 copies of the book. 
and puts them out to market. It was a moderately successful book that was published under the title Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. In the United States, it was published under the title Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Now, what's fascinating about this story isn't the luck of Nigel Newton, right? You would think that it would be him. What I see behind this story is the persistence of J.K. Rowling, who kept sending her manuscript to publisher after publisher after publisher. She knew she had gold in her writing, and she just knew that if it got into the right hands, it would speak to the right person, and it would get published. You think about the power of her faith and her persistence in what she believed in. You know, if there's anything I think that we could celebrate and learn today, I think it's the example of persistence for what is just and right in our world, especially when it comes to justice and equality for all persons, especially the women that are among us. And that maybe we need to learn lessons from you about how to be powerful in our faith and how to pursue what is just and right in this world. So here's what I hope you take home today, all right? To be reminded that we, we all know that the world is still a place that's struggling to understand equality, especially equality amongst genders. That Historically, we know of women who have been, been emboldened by a powerful fate to stand up for what is right and just. And today, that we should be inspired. Inspired by women that are around us, who we know that are on the front lines of these kinds of battles, who are seeking justice and equality, and they're doing so through faith and perseverance. So here's what I think is required of all of us this morning as well. I think first, the traditional thing of honor, right? For each one of us to honor the powerful and faithful women that are among us today, to join in. Maybe it's time that some of us stand shoulder to shoulder with the women who are challenging those things that limit and the unjust structures that are around us, and to give thanks. To give thanks to the special women in our lives that inspire us. Especially the ones that inspire us to do what is right. So really, I hope that here at St. John's, my friends, that we don't have miles to go in recognizing the powerful and faithful women that are right here. Amen? Would you join me in prayer? Merciful and gracious God, We are thankful for today and for this opportunity to gather and to celebrate women among us, mothers and those who are not. To lay aside those kinds of things and recognize that you have created each and every one of us equally and in that we are powerful and faithful people. And in those things we should be able to seek justice in this world for all people to lift up those who are marginalized by our structures and our society, who are looked down upon, who are considered less than. For we know in your eyes there are no such qualifications and distinctions. Lord, help us to see one another through your eyes, creatures created by you, equally created in your image. And through that, Help us to pursue what is right and just in this world. Through the living example of powerful and faithful women, 
refresh us, renew us, and call us forth in Christ.